Man, what a great morning. I mean, holiday weekend and all, and yet so many people have come to worship. I know there's a lot of folks over in the sanctuary, True Worth. We have some True Worth folks in the house even this morning uh, who came here to worship with us, and we got all these folks online. So, I mean, good morning. Can you say good morning? Turn to somebody next to you and say good morning. Yeah, yeah. I caught you off guard, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, we're just glad that you're here. Oh, we're especially glad if you're new here uh, this morning, whether you're watching online for the first time or they kind of, you had in the sanctuary for that area, wherever you are, man, we're just so glad that you're here. And if you are new, uh, you're going to learn a lot about us this weekend. Uh, in fact, if you stay with us the next six weeks, you're going to learn a whole lot more about us. Uh, we're going to talk about some critical things about the life of this church. And if you do call this your church home, uh, we are beginning a spiritual journey of kind of just kind of becoming aware of what God is doing and where God is leading us as a, a church family. We'll be casting a little vision. Uh, we're going on a six-week spiritual journey together, and I invite you to be here uh, every weekend. But please, be a part of this. You're not going to miss it. We're going to start off by being in the book of Luke here in a moment. We're going to hand out Bibles. So if you want a Bible, raise your hand. They're going to bring a little walk the aisle. Bring one to you in the sanctuary. There's one in the pew. And so you can find Luke 6. But Luke 6 is where we're going to go. But before we do that, I want to cast a little vision with you on kind of where we believe God is leading us if you call this your church home. I will put a slide on the screen. We're calling this next six weeks, Now One More. Now One More. And what we feel like that God is kind of redirecting us for a million and one aha moments. We're going to explain all that as we go through these six weeks, this casting vision. That we're going to reclaim this room that we're worshiping in the ark right now. If you're in the ark worship, we're going to reclaim this building for what it was intended for, which was for student ministry and for serving the community. It was never intended to be a place where we have four worship services. Uh, it was for our young people and to serve the community. We're going to reclaim that, which means uh, those that are in this worship space, we get kicked out. Uh, we have to have a place together, right? And we were only going to be here for two or three years. It's now been 16 years. Yeah, 16 years. And so we're going to build a 1,000-seat worship center right here behind this thing called the Ark. We expect it to cost around six and a half to seven and a half million dollars. I'm praying for the six and a half, planning for the seven and a half. Uh, you know how that works in our families. A three-year pledge commitment. If you call this your church home, we're asking you consider at the end of the six weeks as you go through this process. You should be asking, "Hey God, how could you use me? Uh, how could I be a part of this new thing for the next generation?" But the key thing I want you to think about is the number one down there at the very bottom. The number one. Now one more. Uh, you're a one. Anyone who can hear my voice, uh, you're a one. As a one, you matter to God. You need to know that. You matter to God. Your family matters to God. Of what's going on in your life, it matters. Your story Everyone here is in worship, where, however you're doing it, True Worth, Sanctuary, online, in the ark. Your story matters. And your story is just one story. But it's important. We're going to read a story in the Bible this morning from Luke chapter 6. But before we go there, I need to explain some context in the Bible before we read the story, or you're not going to really understand the story. And the story... Is in the context of religious people. And religious people historically have been a group of people who will take something in the Bible, who will take one part of the Bible, and they'll just fixate on this one little section, and they'll hang their whole life on that one little part of the Bible. Then they add a bunch of their own rules, their own ideas to it. Then they have these Bible, these people following them, and they say, listen, if you're going to believe this, you've got to believe the way we believe, and this is how it rolls. And they just kind of, vulnerable people, gullible people fall. So, okay, let's go do it. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Pharisees. Say Pharisees. Uh, they were some religious people. And they picked one verse, one passage out of the Bible, and they almost hung their whole belief system on this one little passage. I mean, it was the driving thing. And so I'm going to read it, because you cannot understand this. You can't understand Luke 6 until you get this. So I'm going to read you the passage that they focus on. It's the fourth commandment in the Bible. It's the fourth commandment. There were ten, right? There were ten. And so this is the fourth commandment. Some of you know, oh, I know what it is. 
automatically, some of you are going, what is the fourth commandment? I, what is it? So I'm going to read it to you so you have an idea. We'll put it on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Here it is. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner. Uh, that word foreigner is an interesting word in the Hebrew. Uh, it could be your guest. It could be a stranger. Uh, so many different things that that word could be. Uh, any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants, they may rest just like you're going to rest. Verse 15, remember, uh, you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, the teaching's clear in the fourth commandment. The Sabbath is a special day. It's to be set apart and not live like every other day of your life. It's to be a day of primarily focusing upon God and resting, being replenished and renewed by the presence of God in your life and time with your family and your loved ones. Now, a little trivia question here. Uh, which national food chain is famous for being closed on Sundays? What is it? Chick-fil-A. And do you really understand the why behind the closing? Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, was a serious follower of Jesus Christ. And he thought that following the fourth commandment was pretty important, not just in his home, but in his 2,486 businesses. And so joyfully, joyfully every year he gave up a billion dollars of income so that his 200,000 plus employees could honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now the Pharisees, they focused on this one little part of the commandment which says you shall not do any work. And they took that part of not doing any work and they took it to the moon. I mean, they just went off the charts with it. And they started adding their own little rules about what constituted and did not constitute work, such as how far you can walk on the Sabbath before it becomes work, how much weight you can carry on the Sabbath before it becomes work, how much food you can cook before it becomes work. Uh, some folks are saying, man, you cook any food, it's work. It's work cooking, right? I mean, that's what some of you are saying. Uh, how much wood can you add to the fire before it becomes you're working on the fire? And so it was just crazy. They added these hundreds and hundreds of rules that are not even in the Bible. And they had these gullible followers that you've got to do this. And if you don't do this, you're not really devout in the following of God and practicing your faith. And they considered themselves the Sabbath police. And man, they were just looking. If somebody broke the rule, they're going to say, we're going to give it to you. I mean, they're going to hammer them if they did that. Now, that's the context you need to understand about the Pharisees. Now, before we read Luke 6, the story I'm going to read you, you need to know about something else that happened with the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus was in a worship gathering on the Sabbath, and he healed the blind guy. And after he healed the blind guy, the Pharisees called an emergency board meeting. And they reviewed the film. And they said, flagrant foul, targeting. <laughs> Jesus, you're kicked out of the game. Because work had to be done for that healing to happen. You had to expend some energy upon that person to heal them, and that's breaking the rule. So Jesus, we're out for you, buddy. We're watching you. You got to be kicked out of the game. Now you know the context. Here's the story, Luke chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, 
Jesus went into the synagogue and he was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, who wrote the book of Luke? It's not a trick question. Who wrote the book of Luke? Feel good about yourself. What was Luke's profession? He was a doctor. So a doctor would pay special attention to which hand it was. It was his right hand, Luke records. His right hand was severely damaged. He had an infirmity. A doctor would notice that. He would notice it was the right hand because he was probably right-handed, which meant he would have a hard time providing for his family financial income which means he would be embarrassed each time he reached out to pick up a cup to drink or to feed himself. He would be putting that out there for everybody to see. And so Luke kind of breaks that little detail here for us to be aware of. Verse 7, it says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, uh, Jesus always knows what you're thinking. That should scare some of you to death. <laughs> he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. Now, can you imagine this guy would not want to do that? If I was to ask one of you, come to one of you and ask you, here, come up here, stand with me, and so show everyone this place in your life that you've been trying to hide from everyone forever, do, do you think you might be going, ah, oh, I really don't want to do that? Can you guy get the feel of the guy probably going, ah? Oh. Then Jesus, verse 9, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, I ask you guys, uh, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good? I mean, is it okay to help people? Is it okay people to give people a ride, to give them something to eat? Is it okay to do good? Or should we do evil? Should we ignore people? Should we just look at someone that's hurting and pay no attention to them? Should we do that? He said, should we uh, save a life? Is it okay to rescue someone? Is it okay to change a family legacy on the Sabbath? Is it okay to do that? Is it okay for someone's life to be totally turned around for the good? Or, or should we destroy that life? Uh, should we just ignore them? Should we ourselves bring harm to them? Now, I hope you understand, because Jesus knew what they were thinking. He's just playing with the Pharisees. He's just messing with them. That's what he's doing. Now, the apostle Mark, the disciple Mark, he was also in the room on this worship day. And he, he records it over in his scripture that at this point, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, that when Jesus looked at the Pharisees, uh, he was in anger. He was angry and he was deeply distressed, it says, at their stubborn, at their arrogance, at their legalistic, hard, stubborn hearts. Because the Pharisees didn't give a rip about the man with the withered hand. They didn't care that his hand was so wounded that he could not provide for his family. He didn't care that he might be embarrassed in a social setting when he reached out or whatever. They didn't care about one more person who was in that worship place experiencing the healing presence of God in their life. They didn't care at all. They just wanted to get Jesus. Now, as I read these stories and really began to think about it, and this is the, the power of in your own house, sitting in your chair, reading your Bible and reading these stories, and to allow yourself to get in the story, I started thinking as all these pieces began to come together. Why was Jesus so angry? Could it be? The Pharisees were looking for a reason to get him, right? That's what the scripture says. Could it be that they went out into the square looking for someone with an infirmity? said, hey, dude, we'll pay you a little. Come on in to worship when we tell you to, it's the Sabbath, and come on. 
And wouldn't that maybe help us understand why Jesus was so angry? That they were using someone, manipulating someone, going to embarrass someone for their own benefit, which is totally against the ways of Jesus. So the Pharisees, right? They're sitting there in the, in the, in the synagogue. They're waiting. Their plan's about to unfold. Right on cue, the man with the withered hand walks into the worship space. No one knows what's about to happen. Man, it is going to be big-time drama. Jesus knows what they're all thinking. He comes over to the man with the withered hand. And listen to what the scripture says to him. He looks around at all the Pharisees. Verse 10, he looked around at them all. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man took a leap of faith. The risk of being embarrassed. The risk of being humiliated. And he stretches out his hand in the presence of Jesus. And the scripture says his hand was completely Restored. Brand new. Not a baby hand. Perfectly healed, restored to its fullness capacity. Now, those of you who never heard this story before, you're probably thinking, well, I know what happens next. The man with the healed hand, he runs up in front of all the people that were there for worship, and he starts singing the old doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Awesome! He's a good, good father, good, good father, right? Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe everyone in the worship space picked up Jesus and the healed man over their head, and they did the way they did the mosh pit, right? They kind of waved him. And they go, whoop, whoop, whoop. Our God is an awesome God. Whoop, whoop. Probably something like that happened, right? That didn't happen. Here's what happened. The Pharisees are waiting. The man stretches out his hand. The hand is healed. They all stand up in one voice. Gotcha! Gotcha, dead to rights. Caught you, Jesus, healing on the Sabbath. You're good as gone, baby. We're going to take care of you. You broke the rules. You're out of here. Mark finishes up his line in this story wonderful well in verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, then the Pharisees, they leave the building, they went out, and they begin to plot with the Herodians, that is a, a Jewish sect, on how they might kill Jesus. So it says they've all left the room. They all went out. So who would that leave in the worship space? Who would that leave? Two people, Jesus and the hill guy. Now, church, again, I want to tell you, this is why it's important for you to have time to just meditate and reflect upon the scriptures. Sit in your chair 15 or 20 minutes because you can use your imagination to put yourself into the drama to imagine what is happening instead of just reading the words. So I did that and I'm imagining, okay, okay, so Jesus and this guy, he's the only guy, be the only two people left. And I can picture them going and kind of finding a place and sitting down somewhere and the hill guy going, man, Jesus. <laughs> Thanks for the hand, man. This is awesome. But I hope I didn't get you into trouble. They seem pretty upset. And I can picture Jesus going, man, don't worry about them. I knew what they were thinking. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. I, mean, I want to hear about your hand. Hey, tell me what you're going to do that you've never been able to do now. I mean, come on. It's going to be awesome. Tell me what you're going to go do with that hand. Tell me. Hey, who are you going to go tell? Who are you most excited about to let them know about what just happened? Who are you going to go tell? And then I picture eventually Jesus saying, hey, man, you just, you just need to go tell your family. I mean, I know that they're going to be so excited when you get home and you show them your hand. Just, just go. So the guy leaves. And that leaves Jesus all by himself in this worship place. And I can picture Jesus looking around at the empty place. And looking up and going, what just happened here? 
This is totally different of what God, my father, expected when he said, hey, listen, I want you to gather for worship. I want you to have teaching. I want you to pray. I want you to come pray. So different. In fact, the polar opposite of what God had in mind for worship and what happened in that little room. There was a complete absence of love in that room on that day. No one cared at all about the man who came with the withered hand and the life and the family that was impeded because of it. All they cared about was catching somebody, breaking their little old church rules. They wanted to be right. There was no pure worship of just turning their hearts to God and saying, God, here I am, I want to praise you. You made your sin so good to my life. There was none of that. There was no praying prayers, expecting God to answer and to heal. No one came praying, hoping that one more would come to know the healing presence of God in their life. No one. They just came with their own personal agenda to stick it to Jesus. And then I picture Jesus kind of walking out, going to leave himself. And before he exits, he kind of lifts his hands up to God and prays, Abba, Father, Dad. Uh, you know, in the next few weeks and months, whenever you send the Holy Spirit and the church is lost and created, man, we got to make sure nothing like what happened here today ever happens again in your thing you're going to create called the church. Ever. This was not okay. Then I picture Jesus leaving all to be by himself somewhere, just kind of staring out the water, just kind of go, well, processing, decompressing what happened. Months later, Jesus is crucified. They actually do kill him, you know. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He did. And then he ascended into heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, it says, the Holy Spirit unleashed upon all the followers of Jesus, and God created this thing called the church. And man, did it live up to the expectations of heaven. I mean, people were coming just one more at a time, one more, one more, one more, over and over again. You read the scripture, one more, one more, and one more, to the scripture, thousands had come to know the healing, love, and grace of Jesus in their life, changing their families and legacies forever. Uh, people came worshiping God, just giving thanks to God for what they have done. Oh, thank you, God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Oh, you're so good and wonderful, God. They're praying bold prayers, and prayers are being answered. Uh, racial walls and gender walls and cultural walls totally broken down. Just a bunch of people coming to the same place from all walks of life, wealthy and poor, taking care of each other and loving each other, meeting together in homes. People of different nationalities and cultures meeting in homes together, praying and reading the scriptures, challenging each other to become a true disciple of Jesus. It was awesome. And because of what happened in that little church in Jerusalem, news spread throughout the area, and new little churches popped up here and popped up there and popped up there. And if you've not put the dots together yet, this church exists because of what happened in that first church in Jerusalem some 2,000 plus years ago. Now, with the time that we have left, I'm going to move quickly through eight statements that the DNA of this church, of who we are, and what happens in worship and the why behind the now one more and where we're going for the next six weeks. And so I'm going to rip through this. Stick with me. Number one, Pathway Church loves people who are far from God. We don't get annoyed with people who are far from God. We don't get angry about their behavior or about their language. They're far from God. Why do you expect someone to be godly who doesn't have God in their life? We don't trash talk them. We don't wish ill will on someone who's messed up. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, he loved people who are far from God. 
Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ so loved us that he died for us. We love people in this church who are struggling and trying to figure stuff out, who are not sure what it is about faith and belief and lifestyle and stuff. We, we're going to love those people, open our doors up to them. I've been around too many churches where they use pastors use this book to say, listen, you got to stay away from those kind of people. You're better than those people, kind of judging those people, making you feel superior to those people. Don't hang out with those kind of folks. And I'm going, listen, I don't understand. I don't see that in the totality of the scriptures. For God so loved people that are far from God, he sent his son Jesus into the world. And if we have the heart of God, we're going to love people who struggle and are far from God. That's a part of our DNA. Pathway Church, the purpose of Pathway Church is to glorify God and share the love and grace in Jesus Christ with as many people as we can. And now we're saying that's a million and one, which is a kind of infinite number, aha moments. Look, through you, when you walk out these doors after worship and you go out to eat, That the way you treat people, even when the lines are long and the table service is slow, whatever it may be, that you experience, you share loving grace in the people's lives. They go, man, that might be a Christian, a church person. You go, wow, aha, that's not what I expected. No, that's not the way people are. You say, that's how we are. That's a part of our DNA. We don't judge people who are far from God. Because here's the deal. We were all far from God at one time. And aren't you glad, some of you, aren't you glad that someone, when you were far from God, they extended love to you? Aren't you glad when you were far from God, someone was kind with you, patient with you, grace merciful to you, and that someone was making room in a chair in a place before you even heard about it for you, that you could experience God's mercy and healing? That's just who we are. Pathway Church, we love people far from God. Uh, number two, Pathway Church extends compassion uh, to people in need. Uh, not only that, we fight for injustice when there is injustice in people's lives. We're going to overcome systems of oppression when there is systems of oppression. We just are. Uh, translator, you know what that means? Uh, let's, make, let's translate that. That means if you're a part of this Pathway Church, it's not coming here having two or three little songs, a little offering, a tidy, tidy 20, 30-minute little message, and you go home and wait another seven days, you come back and do it again. Because that's what it is to be a Christian. And we don't believe that here. That's not the plan. The plan comes from straight from Matthew 25. I don't have time to read it, but here's what it says. Jesus himself said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, Visit the people that are in prison. Do it. You do it to them, you've done it to me. That's a value. That's a DNA, a part of this church. We do, you do it well. I'm proud to be associated with you. That's one of the things that makes this church so special in the community that we live around. A lot of people know this about you. You also know that's another thing that kind of makes people think this is a complicated church, and it's a little complicated. It's a little messy. Uh, it's one of the reasons why people love our church. It's also why so many people kind of leave our church quietly. I mean, some of you may try to do the same thing because, see, so many people, you just want to come to church and a couple little songs, get a pat on the back, a little sugar, and go home and wait till you die, right? And just keep doing that for the rest of your life and go to heaven. And we don't believe that's what the scripture says. That's why some 30 years ago when three ladies in this church saw that we had people at Christmas that weren't having gifts for their children or food on the table, they said, that's not okay. And so in this church and other churches, they rallied the community to start something called Holiday Friends, which still exists, to feed the homeless and to take care of them in all walks of life. And we even brought them in these doors, in this door. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. You have to do this on Saturday. You have worship on Saturday night. So they will not suffer the indignity of standing outside in the cold of waiting for a handout. 
How undignified is that to have to do that? While people drive by in a car, this thing gave birth to the Harvest House, which exists today right down the corner of Renfro and Thomas Street because of three ladies in this church that said, this is not okay. We're going to extend compassion to those that are in need. Uh, 20 years ago, this church uh, kind of birthed what we call the red bag thing because you got all fired up about hunger and feeding people with hunger. There was kids who, when they get home at night, they get fed at school, but they don't get fed at home. And you said, that's not okay. So every month, you started bringing food from September to May. And then we found out that some of those kids during the summer, because they're not in school, they don't get fed during the day either. And so you started bringing food every month, all 12 months of the year, to make sure those kids have food in their bellies. 12 years ago, when the poorest of the poor in Myanmar, these little kids, less than 10 years of age, are being sold into sex trafficking because their parents couldn't afford to put a roof over their head and they're being sold into Vietnam, then they would run away from Vietnam back into Myanmar. And we saw firsthand what was going on. We said, that's not okay. You built and paid for a hostel, a place for those kids to live in, and turned it over to World Vision to run to make sure those kids had a place because they couldn't go home. They couldn't go back to Vietnam. And some folks said, well, you're getting political. No, we're not getting political. We're trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world where people are hurting and broken and don't have a hope. That's what we're trying to do. About five years ago, when the city of Burleson came to us and said, we need a partner to help us, we got some citizens in our own community whose homes are going to be uh, demolitioned. Uh, they don't meet code. And we said, we'll help. And you rallied. You would go to work all week, and then you'd show up during the week at night and on Saturdays to go help these houses get up to code so folks could continue to live in the dwelling that they already had. Uh, sometimes you get dirty. You get your hands, feet. It's just dirty mission work, being a part of the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Uh, two years ago, when Hurricane Harvey hit, some of you were the very first ones on the scene, wading through the water, helping clear up the debris and the mold. Two years ago, when the Boy Scouts of America said that we're now going to allow children boys to come into our scouting program who are not sure about their sexual identity, who are wrestling with that. And some churches said, you can no longer meet here. And these places, they had no place to meet. And they called us and we said, you can meet here. They're kids. But that gets a little complicated. There's some people who didn't like that. They <laughs> all oh, you're being so liberal. You're so no, we're trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus, people who just are wrestling with their identity and who they are in life. We're just trying to care for people. And then so many years ago, uh, we had some kids wander off the streets into this room. Um, they just wandered into this place. They're street kids. And we're having youth on Wednesday night. And they're kinda, they were kind of edgy, I don't mind telling you. And our regular youth is meeting, and they, some folks found them. Instead of kicking them out, instead of kicking these students out, you know what these adults did? They invited them in, and they came back the next week, and they came back the next week, and they came back the next week, and all of a sudden, you got 60 to 80 kids that are showing up on Wednesday nights that weren't even part of our regular youth. They didn't go to worship here. They didn't have a place because their parents weren't going anywhere, and they're coming here all of a sudden, and their lives are being changed and transformed, and there's some people who left the church because we don't want our kids hanging around those kind of kids. Yeah. Being a part of a mission-minded church is complicated. Loving people who are far from God, it's sometimes a little messy. And if you don't have, I want messiness, you may not want to be a part of this. But I'm telling you, that's the DNA of this church. And when the Holy Spirit said, we need to do something for prisoners, and so you started doing something for writing letters to prisoners, right? You'd think that's a slam dunk. And to get families who have prisoners, right, in their family. You'd think that'd be a, the scripture says, Jesus said, visit the prisoners, we asked some people who left this church who said, I don't want any of my money going to someone who's committed a crime. That's okay. But you see, we believe what the scripture has to say, and we're going to extend compassion. And listen, so, you know, if all you want is three little songs and a nice little tidy little message that makes you feel good all over, whatever, right, right, and then go home and just wait till you die and go to heaven, uh, you're at the wrong place. But if you want to be a part of the mission of Jesus, I love this place. Thirdly, Pathway Church is becoming radically inclusive 
a radically inclusive biblical community. I mean radically inclusive. Uh, in Mark chapter 11, uh, Jesus clears out the money changes out of the temple. And then he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, you need to know this about us. Uh, years ago, uh, we were 100% Caucasian. And we didn't even notice that we were. Then the Holy Spirit asked, hey, listen, are, are you a house for all nations? And we're like, no, we're not. And so we got convicted. We're going to do everything we can to break down the walls and welcome anybody into this place of all races, of all languages, of all cultures, of all walks of life, breaking through gender identities, uh, gender, uh, generational sexual identities, uh, language, culture, you name it. Whosoever will may come here. You're welcome here. Whatever your issue, wherever you come from, you are. We are striving to become radically loving, even as we have been loved by the radical love of God. Number four, Pathway Church is becoming 100% devoted to Jesus. 95% devotion to Jesus is 5% short. Have you noticed that? The math is true every time. 95% is 5% short. God has only given us his absolute best. We will only return to him our absolute best. Our absolute best worship. Our best praise. Our best space. The best of our spiritual gifts. The best of our sacrifice. The best of our service. We're just going to give God our best because he gave us his best. 100% devoted to Christ. Because I will tell you, when you're 100% devoted to Jesus, that's where the power is. That's where the miracles happen. Uh, that's, where the, that's, that's where the healing happens. When you're in the 100% domain, 5% short. So we're not going to say it's okay in any of us, in our own lives. I challenge you to not accept anything less than 100% devotion to Jesus. And we're not going to tolerate it in our church as a whole. We're always striving for 100% every area of our life. We're not embarrassed. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, period. Number five, Pathway Church empowers women and men to serve according to their spiritual gifts. Oh, we have taught you in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit sovereignly decides what your gifts are. And we believe the Holy Spirit gives it to women and men without discrimination. And we believe the scripture teaches that you have a responsibility, women and men, to discover yourself, your gift, and deploy them to the zenith of your potential. And we're not going to discriminate women and men. We believe it's the same as we read the Bible. And there are some churches that don't agree with that. We respect them. That's okay. We don't stop fellowship with them. But in this church, women have as many opportunities as men to use their giftedness in serving God in this church and in the world. Number six, Pathway Church stewards her resources wisely, generously, and sacrificially. Uh, we believe that everything that we have has come through the hands of God. Before it comes into our hands, it comes through his hands, completely and totally. Uh, we believe that. We teach you about financial stewardship in your life for your own personal discipleship, not so you can make more money or get ahead. It's not prosperity theology. It's not so you can help fund the budget of the church. It's not that at all. It's about your own personal spiritual formation of Jesus being Lord of everything in your life, even that little thing called money. We believe that you are to earn all that you can. The scripture is clear. Earn as much as you want to and you can. There's no limitations. Earn it all. Earn as much as you can. Go for it. But we believe we are to give the first 10% of everything that comes into our hands to our local church. Regularly, generously, cheerfully, for the moving of God's purposes in the world ahead. And that's the job of the church to do that. We believe that we, you, us, me, that we are to live within the provision of what God has provided and to not let that debt thing get around our neck and beat us into the ground where you were strangled by that debt. It's the pit of hell. 
We're going to provide classes so you don't get involved in that. We believe that's so important for your life. And that you're to save for the future, right? You save for the future. So you can meet a need in someone's life when the need comes about. So you can have a future for yourself in the later years of your life. And when God has a kingdom purpose, like what we're doing now and now, that you can participate in a way that you feel good about being a part of what God is doing in the world. And we believe that God replenishes and resupplies uh, people who participate in that way. We believe the, the finances of this church should be God-honoring. And here's what that means. Uh, we think that we as a church have to live within God's provision. And that we have disciplined budgets, triple layers of accountability so there's no funny business with money around this church. Total transparency. You can ask any question you want about the finances of your church. We'll get the answer to you. There's no question you can't. You just ask. And uh, we believe strongly in that. And you can do that. We believe that we are to be ridiculously generous with other churches and other organizations in the world. So much so, in the past five years, your church, Pathway Church, has given away $1.7 million. $1.7 million around the world to churches, organizations, to families, to households, just to bring healing grace into their life. I mean, it's an amazing, and in spite of that, we still have two months of saving aside for when heaters break down and stuff happens that we don't have to come to you and beg. We have that set aside. And our debt service is only 10% of our budget. Uh, they say you can go to 25%. say, no, we got it at 10%. And I will tell you, our goal is at the end of this campaign for the six and a half to seven and a half million dollars, three years, that we have paid for it in full in three years. We are praying for a miracle. And we are paying down even now $27,000 a month on the principal. We're just on the debt that we do have, which is 3.8. We're just hammering, hammering, hammering away at it. So if you want to learn more about our financial situation, stop out there and say, hey, listen, I want to, I want, I want to report. I want to see something. We'll, we'll give it to you. Two more, real quickly here, please. Number seven, Pathway Church gathers regularly for corporate worship and biblical teaching. Uh, we believe what the scripture says in Hebrews 10. It says, do not neglect meeting together as some is in the habit of doing. Do you know the average person in worship now just comes, uh, they come less, I don't know how you come do this, but less than two times a month? The average Christian in America, that's what the, all the things, if you're so busy, right? So many things kind of pull you away. And we believe, I'm going to challenge you, head up. Jesus in uh, Luke 4, 16, he says this. He, they said, Jesus was in the temple in the synagogue as was his custom. So here's what I'm going to ask you. He had it on his calendar. I'm going to ask you to put it on your calendar. And if you're in town... Uh, come to worship. Expect God to do something. Expect God to show up with withered hands to be healed and, and lives to be changed. Come, pray, knowing that God's going to do something. Uh, do that. And just kind of a little picture for you, kind of get a picture. Uh, this is where the new worship center is going to go. Uh, we hope to start construction next year sometime. You see where we are in the ark? In the ark right now, uh, we have 852 seats. Uh, but if you're sitting back there at the back, will you all agree with me that some of those seats aren't very good? Uh, you can't hear very good. You can't see the screen very well. If you're right behind that column, uh, you got a challenge. you got to have special vision or something. Uh, so we don't have 852 good seats, maybe 350 to 400 maybe good seats. In here, 1,000 seats, every seat will be great. And um, we're going to build a Trader Joe Worship Center in an ATB parking lot. That's just the vision. I just kind of plant that for you to remember here. Everything. And here's the last one, number eight, and you're lucky Time is running out because uh, I could stand on this point for 45 minutes. I'm not. Pathway Church depends upon God and is courageously obedient to the Holy Spirit. I'm so proud of that reality of the church session, the elders that you've elected. This church does not exist because some denomination wanted to start a franchise in Johnson County. That's not why we're here. This church is not here because some wealthy person wanted to give a bunch of money and put their name on a building. This church is here because in 1971, the Holy Spirit spoke to six families. I want you to build a church in Burleson, Texas, where your family and friends who are far from God can come. And they did. 1988, the Holy Spirit spoke again. The church is growing, exploding. I want you to build a 400-seat sanctuary 
it's over there in the other corner. It's where the folks are right now in the sanctuary. They're your worshiping over there. That was it. And, but to build that, I had to go to Presbytery, which is our governor, and say, listen, can you give us permission to build this building? I had to ask. So I went and asked them. And I said, hey, while you're at it, I want you to know, uh, we only have two acres right now, but we, we, we think that God's going to have us 10 to 20. And we're, we picture having this big facility for students can come and, and gather and minister to the community and have an incredible outreach ministry for all over the world. Uh, we have this vision to have a multi-staff, high-capacity staff, building high-capacity lay leaders in the church. Uh, we have a vision of a counseling center, multi-worship service offerings. And I shared all that, but right now, would you just give us permission to build this 400-seat worship space. And they said, yeah, we'll give you uh, the permission to do that. But all that other stuff, you know, it's crazy. It's not going to happen. I said, y'all are not dealing with reality. See, here was reality. Reality was we had a $67,000 a year, a year income and an $80,000 budget. That's not very smart, is it? We had a full-time seminary student for a pastor. And they said, you're not dealing with reality. And we said, you're right. We're not dealing with reality. We're dealing with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, build my church now. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so they did. Uh, there are people who delayed retirement. There are people who delayed buying a car. There are people who reconfigured their entire lives, uh, changed jobs even, sacrificed so much. So there could be a seat right now for you. And you didn't even know them. And they didn't know you. And now it's our turn for the next generation. The Holy Spirit, we feel, has spoken clearly. A million and one ahas reclaim this building for its purpose for our students in the community. Build a thousand-seat worship space. And uh, pay for it in three years. Six and a half to seven and a half million dollars. But it's all about the one. It's all about now one more. And I'm going to invite the host to receive our offering now. And uh, you're going to see a short little video about one more. And so uh, this is... I grew up in Burleson. Go ahead. So Go ahead. I knew of Pathway. I actually went to a sister church um, when I was a little girl. I went to a lot of different youth groups when I was a teenager, and I was the problem teenager. I really struggled with the fact that nobody reached out and spoke life into me back then. Before Pathway, my husband and I really were living a wild, crazy life. We were going, you know, partying, going to the bars. He knew that if we have a son, then he did not want to drink and live that same life for him. When my husband decided to quit drinking, our lives really changed. Like we thought we had a close-knit, tight circle of friends and that all kind of unraveled. And we found ourselves doing family life day after day. The same thing, going to work, coming home, doing daycare and school. And it was a sense of hopelessness mixed in with what is my purpose in life. I was lost. I was in a lost lifestyle. I was kind of hopeless and not sure where I belonged, but as soon as I came to Pathway, I knew that's where God needed me to be. I was driving to go to a church on Sunday. I got my son in the car, we got ready, uh, we got down to Wilshire and Renfro, and I decided to go straight for whatever reason, instead of turning to go to my old church. And I remember everything that happened, where I sat, how I felt, the people who greeted me, and I remember feeling like I belong there, like I was drawn there by God to be in that place at that time. The worship really drew me back in and the words that Rick spoke as he was teaching the message really like they were for me. Like I knew that I needed to hear those words in that moment. There was a feeling inside of me I just could not explain to people. It was like validation that I am where I need to be. The people at Pathway really connected with me from the beginning. I had a few people that found out that I was a graphic designer. So I began serving with family ministries and doing a lot of the design for the events that came up. And I really loved it. I loved doing that and it made me feel connected. It feels like I'm fulfilled. I'm part of something and I have these amazing people who have also been on similar journeys and they walk with you and they're supporting you. The change is like night and day.
There's a feeling of wholeness, almost, compared to how I was living my life then. My husband was uh, raised Catholic, so for a couple years, he didn't come with me. And with the relationships that I started to make here, um, he really kind of started to change too, as I started to pray for him. He came on one Easter, and then he came on Christmas, and then he stayed. My whole family comes to church now. My mom started coming to Pathway, and my stepdad started coming shortly after that. There's just a lot more closeness now with our family. There's been so many changes in our life since we came to Pathway. We took parenting classes as well as financial classes that really completely changed the way we live. If I could tell my past self one thing, it would be get in church, get involved, get connected to a small group, and begin serving. I should have done it a lot sooner. I was the lost sheep. I was the one more and Pathway really brought me home and my whole family. So what did not happen in that worship service after the man's hand was healed? What didn't happen? There was no celebration. So church, what do we do now? Thanks be to God for one more family totally changed because of the loving grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is, the, that is it. That is it. So for the next six weeks, here's the ask. Uh, that you've been praying for your church. Here's the ask. Be praying for your church. Do your life steps. When you walk out the door, you're going to get one of these. a devotional book that's been written by the people of your church, Monday through Friday, a real short, one page. Uh, I think you'll find it meaningful along with your life steps. And next Sunday night at 5.30, you're in town. You don't want to miss this. We're going to have a prayer and praise service, all five of our worship services in here together. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a historical event. You will not want to miss it. Our young people are going to be involved. It's going to be awesome. So it's next Sunday night at 5.30, last about an hour-ish, something like that. Uh, the Cowboy game doesn't start till 7.20. <laughs> you will be there way in time. And uh, they have told me that I can only preach 15 minutes, and I'm promising to do only that. Uh, okay. So, when you walk out the door, there's going to be a prayer at the front of this little book. I want you to pray this prayer every day. That's the ask. Every day, the whole church, every day. It's in your life steps, but here in this little devotion book as a family, I ask you to do this. And in fact, we're going to end by doing this prayer together. We're going to end right now. I know we need to. So, let's all stand together. Uh, whether you're online, sanctuary. Uh, will you true worth? Let's stand here. Let's all pray this prayer together. If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you after worship. When you walk out, if you have questions, stop at the one now place. Don't answer any questions about what's going on here with this thing. Here we go. God grant us a joy-filled experience of sacrificial generosity that will leave a legacy for generations to come so that now and forever in our Pathway Church family, there is always enough love and grace for one more in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. I'd love to meet you if you're new.